Brother Luke read from Philippians chapter 2. That's because we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11. But let me just remind you of what we saw last time from as we closed out the book of Romans. Remember what Paul said in chapter 16 of Romans and verse 25 in this doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And remember, that doesn't mean the preaching that Jesus Christ did, but it means the preaching which consists of Jesus. In other words, preaching the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, That is the means by which God strengthens his people. And if you think about it, there are few passages in the New Testament that can compare to the passage that we'll be looking at from Philippians chapter 2 when it comes to preaching Jesus and being strengthened and encouraged by his person and work. So that's what we're going to be doing. And uh, we're reminded here that Christians need to hear the gospel. The gospel is not just the message by which we're saved initially. It's the gospel. It's the same message that strengthens us, that empowers us, that equips us as followers of Christ. And um, this passage in Philippians 2 exemplifies that. I trust that you'll, you'll see that as we go through it. Um, overall, the passage lays before us the, uh, the example of Christ, and it's in the form of an ancient hymn. We, we don't know if it's a hymn that Paul had a hand in writing, or if it was a hymn that was circulating among the churches, and then, and then Paul uh, adopted it and included it in his letter. But in either case, Paul certainly approved of it, Um, He certainly owned it, and uh, the Holy Spirit was pleased to include it in Paul's letter here. And so uh, this is the material of worship. Uh, There's heavy theology here. Some of the deepest, most profound statements of Christology, the doctrine of Christ, in the New Testament here. But... It's not meant to puff us up. It's not meant to just fill our brains with information, but it is meant to lead us to worship and praise Jesus Christ, the one whose person and work is described in this hymn. So uh, let's go ahead and look at it. It's the example of Christ. And uh, the first thing that Paul mentions here in verse 5 is the mindset of our calling. The mindset of our calling. Verse 5 is a command. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This uh, mind that he mentions in verse 5 means our, our attitude, our mindset. And this attitude, this mindset that's supposed to be ours is that which Jesus exemplified, and he's going to go on and 
develop that really clearly. But it's an attitude of self-emptying, rights-renouncing, humble servanthood. That's what Jesus exemplified. That's the mind that we're supposed to have. And you'll notice that he says we're to have that mind among ourselves. And what he has in mind there is the the communion of the saints, the, the fellowship of the church. We're supposed to be rubbing shoulders with each other, walking together as the body of Christ, helping one another. And as we do that, we're supposed to have this mind which Christ had. It's, it's easy to think that you're humble and tolerant and long-suffering and loving and patient when you're all by yourself. When you're all by yourself, everyone agrees with you. <laughs> everyone does what you want to be done. Everyone's on the same page. It's me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to have this attitude of self-emptying, rights-renouncing, humble servanthood when we are commanded to join together in unity as the body of Christ and walk together not with perfected saints, but with believers who are in the process of being sanctified just like we are. And yet, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. And then he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he doesn't just say immediately, follow the example of Christ. He says this mindset is yours in Christ. We, we possess this mindset, this attitude by virtue of our being in Christ Jesus. It's not our personality type. It's nothing that the flesh brings to the table. It's ours in Christ Jesus. When we're in Christ and Christ is in us, we're transformed from the inside out. Our mindset to our outward behavior. That's the Christian model of morality, of walking with Christ. And of course, the example is, the example of Jesus is key. So there's the Christian mindset. And next we have Christ's exemplary attitude. Christ set the example. He showed us the pattern. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. Paul is really precise in his use of language here, and we're going to talk about that uh, in a couple of key places in the passage. But the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that word form in verse 6. He was in the form of God. It's the pretty familiar Greek word morphe, 
We've, uh, that's been transliterated into English. So uh, transformation means a change in form. Uh, morphology, the study of forms. The word morphe means the, the nature or character of something. And so when Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, it means that he possessed, he shared the nature or character of God. He was God. And at this point, it's good for us, I think, to pause a little bit and just remind ourselves of a couple of passages in the New Testament that, that affirm this truth of Jesus that he shares in the nature or character of God. He's divine. So look with me in John chapter 1. And verse 1, John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, in communion, in fellowship, in relationship, and the Word was God. And who is this Word? Down in verse 14. And the Word became flesh. That's literally what the, the incarnation means. It means the eternal word of God became flesh. He was enfleshed. And having become flesh, he dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 18, uh, this word is identified by name in verse 17, Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. He's inherently invisible. But the, the only God who in the context is this word of God, this Jesus who is at the Father's side, remember? He was with God and he was God. He was at the Father's side. He has made him known. The fundamental role of Jesus in this world is, is to bring into the visible realm that which is inherently invisible, God. We can't see God. No one has ever actually seen God but Jesus has always been with God. He is God himself. He's been at the Father's side. He's been enfleshed in order to make that invisible God known. And so then Jesus would say in John chapter 10, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then uh, skipping to Hebrews and chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. He, this son, in verse 2, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
And he, that is the son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Those are really, really profound words. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 that the God who commanded light to shine in darkness has shown in our hearts to show the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And he's, he's the exact imprint of his nature. We're fallen image bearers, but even apart from our fallenness, we're, we're just image bearers. We're at best image bearers. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Another way to express that, he was in the form of God. He is God. And this activity ascribed to the Son in Hebrews verses one and uh, chapter one and verse three is described elsewhere in John chapter one. It was through the eternal Word of God that God created all things, and in Colossians chapter one verses fifteen and sixteen, um, it is it is through Christ and for Christ all things were created, and in Him. All things hold together and consist. In other words, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's what God does. That's what the Son of God does. Jesus is in the form of God. He is God. That's his essence. No doubt about it. Paul is very specific and clear and precise in his use of words. But notice, thinking about Christ's example, his exemplary attitude, that's who Jesus is. He is in the form of God. But here's his mindset, his attitude. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So even though he is God and he's the brightness of the Father's glory, the full exercise of that, all of the rights and privileges that go along with that, he didn't grasp. That word grasp means something to hold by force. Something to be forcibly retained. And you know, you know what comes to my mind when I think about that, when I hear that? Um, I think about Charlton Heston, bless his heart, when he was the, um, the president of the National Rifle Association and, he, and he's holding up his rifle and he says, I'll give you my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> That's an illustration of this verb, to grasp. And I'm not criticizing Charlton Heston for that. I believe and I'm thankful for the Second Amendment. But he's, he's an example of what it means to grasp something, 
to, to not let something go, to hold on to it by force. Paul says about Jesus, when it came to his equality with God, his equal rights with God, he did not count it as something to be forcibly retained. That's his exemplary attitude. But then Paul goes on in this hymn to tell us about Christ's exemplary actions. First his attitude, now his actions. Notice verse 7. So Christ didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself Nothing. Taking the form of a servant. And this word means that he emptied himself. Of what? What did Jesus empty himself of? And here's where we do need to be careful and take our time because there are some people who interpret this to mean that Christ emptied himself of his divine nature. So in verse 6, even though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so in verse 7, he emptied himself of it. He emptied himself of his divinity, of his divine nature. He was God and then he ceased to be God. That's called the kenosis theory. And that name, kenosis theory, is named after the Greek word that's translated empty, ekenosin, which is derived from the word kanao. But I need to explain to you why this can't be the correct interpretation of Paul's words here in Philippians 2.7, and then I'll explain what Paul is really saying. This is why it's so important to nail down what we've already nailed down in verse 6, that Jesus was in the form of God. He was in the substance, uh, he, essence, nature of God. He shared in the divine nature. Because if Jesus ever had a divine nature, if Jesus was ever God, then that cannot change. Malachi 3 and verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. Jesus Christ does not change. And in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 13, Paul tells us that God cannot deny himself. That means that God cannot contradict his nature as God. There are some things that God cannot do. God cannot change. God cannot lie. God cannot be unfaithful. 
And that's not a weakness of God. That's a strength of God. But the kenosis theory asks us to believe in an incarnation by divine suicide. It asks us to believe that Jesus, who is in the form of God, basically stopped being God. He committed suicide as God. And that cannot be. It's impossible. So what is Paul saying then? Well, he explains himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It is self-emptying. It is uh, humbling himself by addition, not by subtraction. In the incarnation, the eternal Son of God became what he was not before, the Son of Man, God in the flesh. It's just like what we saw in John chapter 1. There, there was the Logos, the Word of God, who was in the beginning with God and who was with God. And then that Word of God became enfleshed. So his divine nature didn't change, didn't go away, wasn't canceled out, but his enfleshment, his humanity was joined together with it. It's sort of like when you get dressed in the morning, when you put on your clothes, you don't change who you are. You don't change your human nature, but you cover yourself up. You, you add something to yourself. And in a sense, that's what Jesus did when he became a man. He put on divine nature, uh, human nature, a true human body and a true human soul. He put that on. But putting on humanity didn't change his deity. It veiled it. It, in a very important respect, hid it. And we sing about this every Christmas time when we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing by Charles Wesley. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Then, Notice how Paul goes on to elaborate, back to Philippians chapter 2, being found in human form, he says in verse 8. Verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he put on our humanity, didn't give up his deity, but he put on our humanity. Then verse 8 and being found in human form. This is very important because we made a big deal out of the word form in verse 6. Remember that? In verse 6, Paul used the word morphe. But in verse 8, the English Standard Version translates it as form, but it's a different underlying Greek word. It's the word schema. 
And that's another Greek word that's been carried over into the English. Schematic or scheme. Schema. And that means external form, appearance. So think about a schematic. A, a schematic diagram of, of like a circuit. It shows you all the symbols and components of a circuit, but it's not the underlying circuit itself. V behind that schematic, there's this real thing with real electronic components and real electrons and protons circulating and voltages going up and down and all of that. Well, Jesus' humanity was his schema, his schematic, his external form or appearance. It was, it was real. He was a real human being with a real human body and a real human soul. There's nothing about his humanity that wasn't human. The only thing different about humani his humanity compared to mine and yours is that he was not infected with a fallen human nature. He was not impacted by original sin. He knew no sin. But other than that, his humanity was just like ours. But behind that humanity, underneath that humanity, if you will, there was the morphe of divinity. Spiros Zodites, in the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament, distinguishes between these two words like this. He says, morphe, that's the word used in verse 6, morphe is the necessary and fundamental expression, mode, or form of an object's essence. Jesus' essence was divine. He had the essence of Godhead. But schema, he says, is the fashion, style, or apparent arrangement of an object, yet no less true and real than its form. So that's the distinction. And Paul uses those two different words intentionally. And so in verse 8, and being found in human form, in terms of his outward appearance, he humbled himself. And if you think about it, becoming a man in the, all by itself, just the incarnation, the, the creator becoming a helpless babe in a manger, that's humbling enough. But that wasn't the end of Christ's humiliation. It wasn't the end of his process of humbling because he says he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Jesus, we're told in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And that's just fascinating to think about. 
Jesus in his divine essence. He is the standard of the standard of holiness. He, he's holy in and of himself. The, the, the law summarized in the Ten Commandments has Jesus as its standard and then the law is our standard of, of holiness. But that's Jesus, the Holy One, the standard of the standard of obedience and yet here he is as a man enfleshed, God enfleshed. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And you can multiply that example through all of Christ's experiences as the God-man as he walked upon this earth. He's the source of life and yet he would end up tasting death. He's happy and content and satisfied in himself. He's, he's uh, self-existent. And yet, he experienced hunger and thirst, tiredness. The entire universe belongs to him. It, it's, it's an infinite understatement to say about Jesus that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the earth belongs to him and all of its fullness. He's infinitely, indescribably, incomprehensibly rich and yet he was so poor. He didn't own a place on which to lay his head. made himself nothing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. But there was a, an object, there was a goal for his obedience. It wasn't just obedience in general. It wasn't just any old obedience, even though Jesus was completely obedient. He always did that which pleased his father. He never sinned. But there's a specific kind of obedience that Paul talks about. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus obeyed to the point of death. And we know that that wasn't just any old death. Jesus didn't die a natural death. He didn't go to bed alive and then die a natural death in his sleep. He didn't lay down in his easy chair for his afternoon nap and never wake up. Jesus died a terrible death, a painful death, a death on a Roman cross. But in addition to that death being painful and excruciating, it was particularly humiliating. It was public. And when a crucified person hung upon a cross. He was typically hung naked to humil humiliate him. And when Jesus hung there on the cross, above his head was written, this is Jesus, the King of Jews, to mock him, to ridicule him, because he claimed to be the Messiah. 
He claimed to be the king of the Jews. And the Romans are saying, this bloodied, beaten, and battered person hanging on the cross, this is the king of the Jews. Ha! It's humiliating. Why? I quoted to you from Hebrews 5 and verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Verse 9 goes on to say, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That was the point. Salvation, the source of eternal salvation. We needed that humiliation that Jesus endured. We needed that obedience that Jesus rendered because he has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In the death of Jesus, God was reconciling the world, including us, to himself. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's why it was so important for him to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Charles Wesley, who wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, also wrote, And Can It Be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain, for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. But as you can see, that's not the end of the hymn. Paul goes on to talk about Christ's exaltation. Katie, would you do me a huge favor? Bring me my water. Thanks. Notice verses 9 through 11. Thank you. Christ's exaltation. First, Christ was exalted by God, understood to mean God the Father. Therefore, because of Christ's mindset, because of his example, because of his obedience, because of his self-emptying, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every Name And Paul's language there literally means God super exalted Christ. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. The Father of glory raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God has highly exalted Christ. God has super exalted Christ. 
And by the way, it's, it's a different exaltation. It's, it's unique to the man Christ Jesus. Think about this with me. In the high priestly prayer in John chapter 15, 17 and verse 5, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. That's the glory that Jesus emptied himself of when God became flesh and dwelt among us. But then when he went through his humanity and his obedience and his humiliation culminating in his death on the cross, and then God raised him from the dead and and he ascended into heaven and God has highly exalted him, he's not back to the same place. It's, It's unique. Because before his incarnation, Jesus was not a man. He was the son of God He was the eternal word of God. He was co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. They they shared the essence of God together. But in his incarnation, there was added to his deity true humanity. And it is now the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is exalted Not just the pre-incarnate Christ glorified, but the incarnate, glorified Son of God, God in the flesh, who is now exalted. So somewhere in existence, in heaven, which we don't know exactly where it is, except Jesus went up to get there, but somewhere there is the glorified, resurrected, exalted body of King Jesus enthroned. And he's now receiving the worship of heaven. So exalted by God the Father in verse 9. And then Paul says exalted by, by people in verses 10 and 11. Who, and who are we as people? Don't forget, we're God's image bearers. And as as believers, that original created image of God is being renewed in us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10. So that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. By the way, do you know whose name is described in those terms in the Old Testament? God, Yahweh. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23. That's God. That is the reverence that rational creatures like us owe to God and the glory represented by his name. Well, we owe the same kind of worship to God's son. 
who is in the form of God. Do not ever bow your knee to any mere creature, man, woman, or angel. It is only appropriate to bow the knee at the name of God, and that includes Jesus. But Paul goes on, verse 11. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, a title of God, to the glory of God. In Isaiah chapter 42, God says that he will not share his glory with another, but he is glorified through Jesus Christ who's the brightness of the Father's glory. You cannot know God. You cannot be saved by God. You cannot glorify God except through the Son of God, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ the righteous, who came to take away the sins of the world. So Christ's Example, And uh, I do have a couple of takeaways for you. So here we are hearing this incredible theology, this magnificent Christology, this deep truth, this profundity that I believe is beyond the ability of men on their own to invent. This is the pen of Paul. It's the mind of Paul. But behind Paul was the Holy Spirit. But you see, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to love him and obey him and walk with him. This is what it means to have Christ preached to us. We, we, we need this. We need truth about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do a, a survey of the book of Philippians in chapter 1, at the end, uh, verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It, it's granted to us to suffer for Christ's sake. Well, I need this mindset to be able to endure suffering because in and of myself, I don't very much like suffering. I wouldn't pick suffering I, I would kick against the goads of suffering. I would say, God, no thank you. And behind every refusal of suffering is an attitude that says, God is not important enough and I'm too important. There's obedience in verse 12. Chapter 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in your absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Obedience. We, we need to embrace, we need to have worked into our souls constantly who Jesus is, what he did for us, so that we will obey. 
Because behind every measure of disobedience is a low view of God and a high view of ourselves. I will not do this or that or the other. Grumbling and complaining and questioning. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Behind every complaint a low view of God, a high view of ourselves. Re rejoicing in the Lord, chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Why should I rejoice when I'm sick, when I'm being persecuted, when the world's falling apart and people aren't being nice to me, and on and on and on. But you see, when we focus our attention on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we let that mind be in us, then we could think about things that transcend our circumstances. And in all occasions and all circumstances, we can rejoice. We can even, like James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. We, we can't do that without the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Contentment, also in chapter 4, Verses 11 and 12, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. Jesus was brought low. And I know how to abound. Jesus was exalted. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need contentment behind every ounce of our lack of contentment is a low view of Christ and what he emptied himself of in order to save us of his humiliation of his obedience to save us and an exaggerated, inflated view of ourselves. I don't like my circumstances because I deserve better. And even though every one of us would be embarrassed to say those words, that's what's going on in our hearts. When we think about what Jesus did, then in every circumstance we can be content because it's way, 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 way more than we deserve. In spite of what we deserve, God has lavished unspeakable riches on us. Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we who are poor through his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray.
Lord, what can we say but thank you? Please forgive us for how we fall short. And we're so grateful that our acceptance with you is not based on our obedience, our enduring suffering, our doing all things without grumbling and complaining, our not rejoicing in the Lord, and our discontentment. We're so grateful that Jesus has done it all. He has worked out a perfect righteousness as God in the flesh that is counted to us. And he took the punishment, the curse, the condemnation that our sins deserved. And we're so grateful that we are complete in him. And yet, Lord, you, you tell us to follow his example, so help us, we pray. May Jesus dwell in our hearts by faith, and may we imitate Christ, and so bring him much glory in this lost and fallen and dark world. We pray in his name. Amen.